Is that it? Okay, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Tonight we'll consider verses 11 through 14. Before we get to those, let me remind you of our passage from last week. I'd like to just, we're not going to do exposition on it, but I'd like to remind you as to what Paul said from verses 3 to 10 anyway. Paul says, If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into the world, and so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin. And destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. So in verses 3 through 10 of chapter 6, Paul stresses that false teachers, that's, that's who he's bringing up in verse 3, false teachers are marked by false attitudes which lead to sinful actions. False teachers false attitudes, and then sinful actions. We are not to follow in their footsteps, Paul says. We should learn to keep material possessions in their proper perspective, having as our priority in life the glorification of God and not the accumulation of things. Now, in chapter 6, verses 11 through 14, he says, But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, Love, perseverance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you, in the presence of God who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's where we'll stop tonight. So Timothy, as in contrast to the behavior of the false teachers, Timothy is urged to flee. He's urged to run away from these things of wickedness, money lust, error, envy, bickering, and slander that characterize the false teachers. He's supposed to run away from that, and he's supposed to run toward or pursue, or eagerly seek after the opposite of those things. Namely, in this passage, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. He's supposed to run away from the wicked things as quick as he can get away from them. And he's supposed to run toward those things of righteousness. This Greek term for running fugo means to move quickly from a point or an area in order to avoid a presumed danger or difficulty. It means to run away. Sometimes it even meant to escape from something. Now, you don't escape from something that's good, do you? You typically escape from something that's bad. And so Paul's saying the things that the false teachers were doing, you don't emulate those. Now, in other places, Paul will say, emulate me, imitate me. 
That's a pretty bold statement, isn't it? I mean, for any human being to say, imitate me. But the only reason he's saying imitate me is because he's imitating God at that point. Now, here what Paul's saying is there are people that don't have your best interest in mind. And as I said last week, I know that's difficult for a lot of you. Because you have tender, nurturing hearts. And you don't want to think ill of anybody. You don't want to even have it cross your mind that somebody in ministry... Of all things, somebody in pastoral ministry may not have your best interest in mind. But there were people in Ephesus that didn't. And there are people today that don't. I mean, I'm not going to name names. I don't know who they are. I mean, some, some I think their actions precede them. And we can pretty well tell where, where some people's hearts are. But in spite of the fact that we don't want to think poorly of anybody, the fact remains that there are people who are false teachers. And it's not just a subject here. It's a subject in many of Paul's letters. It's one of the responsibilities of a good shepherd to warn the flock against false teaching. And we spent some time on that in our study of John on Sunday morning as well. So if anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, and they have this particular type of behavior, don't follow them. There's, there, in fact, we should run away from them and run toward Something else. You see, if you're going to run away from something, don't you typically run towards something else? <laughs> you better be, or else you're going, to be, you're going to be in the up someplace you don't want to go. So if we're going to flee wicked behavior that's a result of false teaching and bad motivation, we need to go toward righteous behavior. Uh, the point is that the vices, the wickedness that Paul outlines in verses 3 through 10, are destructive to the soul. This is no light matter. These are things that are not not destructive to the body so much, but they're destructive to the soul. Now, all of us have had injuries, I, mean, I, I would assume, some, some perhaps more than others. And physical injuries typically heal, given enough time. But sometimes injuries to the soul can take a long time. A lot of rehabilitation of the soul has to take place. And this, this is something very serious. And so Paul doesn't say, listen, you need to stroll away from these things. <laughs> he doesn't say you need to walk away from these things. He says you need to turn around and run away from these things. Much like if, if we were in a room today and a, and a man bur- burst through this door and went around this, this way, headed out toward that door, and found, found that door locked, Right behind him, Officer Cam Grison, we'll use one of our own, comes behind him with gun drawn and says, get down. I hope nobody would say, listen, Cam, why, why are you doing that? The, the floor, I, I, I just, I'm going to have to get my pants dirty. If, he's, if he yelled at you, get down, wouldn't you, wouldn't you perceive a sense of urgency? that You might ought to go ahead and do it now, not, not tomorrow. Don't ask him any questions. Get the floor, or a bullet's going to hit you. And that's the urgency that Paul preaches with regard to this. These things are terrible that these false teachers are not only teaching, but the behavior that they're exhibiting as a result of that teaching, it should not be emulated. In fact, we should do exactly the opposite of emulation of that. We should run the other direction. There is a sense of urgency here. And the avoidance of these vices and the pursuit of virtues fits what, what uh, Paul calls here the man of God. Now, in, in a previous dispensation, the age of Israel, this was a designation of a person who had been chosen by God and entrusted with a high office like Moses was called the man of God, uh, David, the man of God, Elijah was called the man of God, and oftentimes the prophets were called the man of God. 
But in this dispensation, in the dispensation we call the church age, every believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Every believer is an ambassador for Christ, meaning we represent him. Every believer is a priesthood. So not only do we represent ourselves before God, we represent Christ to a lost and dying world. Each of us has the responsibility to be a man of God. And here where the term is being used for both male and female. If you have your Bibles open already, you might want to turn just to the next book. And But it's a passage that you're very familiar with. You can probably quote it. All Scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for, for doctrine for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be mature or thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, we're all called upon to be people of God, God's representatives. You see, it's not just the pastor, it's not just the evangelist, it's not just the seminary professor who is a man of God, one who should be representing God. It's every single one of us, and Paul makes this very clear here, and we, we find out when we get to Second Timothy that it includes all of us. Now, true, if every believer is a man of God, Timothy, who is in a position of responsibility, is a man of God in a, in a special sense. There are some that are out front. That's true. And those that are out front, and we've already seen in, in Timothy, we'll see it again when we study Titus, there's a certain behavior that's expected even over and above the, if there was such a thing, the average Christian, but there's not. I, I don't even want to use that, that term. I, that's why I also don't like, don't like to use the term lay Christian. Because we're all in, in Christian ministry. All of us have that responsibility. But Timothy is a man of God in an even more special sense. A man of God is God's special possession. His unique ambassador and, and as such, he is the very opposite of the false teacher. The polar opposite of the false teacher. There's one up here, Joe, if you need it. All of us, I think, have an idea of what an ambassador does. But if you were named uh, tomorrow the ambassador to Japan, it would do you well to study up a bit about Japanese culture to learn what would offend them and what would not offend them within the scope of that culture, probably if at all possible to learn some of the language. And then when you went to represent the United States to the nation of Japan, you would always remember that you're not representing yourself. You're representing the United States. And you're at the beck and call of the President of the United States. And you may sit down at a meeting with someone and, and that the, the person at the other side of the table says something that's very offending to you personally. Then what is your responsibility? Your responsibility is to act in accordance with the way the people that sent you want you to act, or in this case, the president wants you to act. You have no right to pop off and say, hey, listen, that's just my view. <laughs> that's not the president's view. It doesn't work that way. When you're an ambassador for a nation, you represent that nation. You're expected to dress in a certain way. You're expected to talk in a certain way. You're expected to have certain courtesies. Now, if that's true in a geopolitical realm isn't it so much more true in the christian realm we represent the lord jesus christ and there's a certain behavior that's expected of us and you may not like that i don't care jesus christ is the one that sent us out just like an ambassador if they can't handle it, they need to quit now we can't quit our ambassadorship i guess you can but you're in big trouble if you do 
we are, we are at the beck and call of our leader, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, this is the behavior that's expected of you if you're going to represent me. Like it or not. But I've got to tell you, life's short. You better represent him with all you have. You better not take any days off. And you better be careful about popping off and giving your opinion when God's opinion is the one that's being requested. So, Timothy, as a man of God, as an ambassador for Jesus Christ, is, is given the responsibility to run after righteousness. Righteousness is a state of heart and mind that's in harmony with God's plan for our lives. Righteousness, then, a, a pursuit of righteousness, will then lead to the next characteristic, which is godliness. Some like the term godliness, uh, some don't. It's, it's not a bad term, but, but godliness, eusebeia, means, means simply the, the behavior that is consistent with the character of God. Hence, hence that's why they, they, they put the ness on the end of God, godliness. But you can call it what you want to, but it's behavior that's consistent with what God would do in a similar circumstance. Now, some people liked them, some people didn't. I thought they were kind of nice sometimes, these bracelets that people had, what would Jesus do? Uh, I had no problem with that. I thought that was pretty neat, actually, if, if they were used in the right way. You know, when you face a situation, well, what would my Lord do in this situation? All that was was a constant reminder of your ambassadorship. Did you know that? That's just a constant reminder of the responsibility that we had to do what Jesus would have done in a particular circumstance. Now, granted, there are some circumstances where I don't have the right to do what he would have done because I'm not sovereign God. And he, and he exercised his deity in, in a few of those positions. But otherwise, we are to act as he would act. So first we run after righteousness, and then the result of pursuing righteousness is going to be a behavior that's consistent with the way God wants us to behave what he would do in that particular circumstance. You see, the President of the United States can't be everywhere. He can't go to every single country, so he sends representatives. And they're supposed to act like he would act, or act like he instructs them to act. Jesus Christ has, while well, he is omnipresent, has left this earth, and he's left us here as his representatives. And, and before he left, he said, you know what, you guys, speaking to the apostles and those who followed him, are going to do even greater things than I ever did. Now, how could that be? You know, I've never healed anybody of anything. Uh, and not not on a not and not as a healer from from God. I've never performed any miracles. What does Jesus mean that you're going to do greater things than what I did? He's going to mean greater in number. You see, because when he was here, he had a limited ministry, and now we're his representatives, and we've spread out. You remember in Acts chapter one, verse eight, that the whole plan for evangelism was given right there. That you'll be my representatives, you'll be my disciples in Judea and some, uh, Jerusalem, rather, Judea, Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. So we have spread out, and we're to, to uh, represent him consistently. Now, the next three that are listed here, faith, love, and perseverance, they really belong together. Remember the faith, hope, and love, or faith, love, and hope in Colossians, faith, hope, and love in First Corinthians? Th this is part of that triad. For you see, endurance is the offspring of hope. Have you ever thought about that? Endurance is the offspring of hope. The Greek term elpis means a confident expectation. It's not like if somebody was asked me, are the Houston Texans going to win this weekend? And I'd say, I hope so. <laughs> Wouldn't you? Yeah. I hope so. 
Now, if someone was to say, are the Houston Astros going to win tonight? I might say, I hope so, but I might mean that a little differently because I have a little more confidence that they might. I forgot who's pitching tonight, but I got a little more confidence that they might do that. And if somebody's listening to it in one ear while you're listening to me, don't, don't make any signals that they're up or down. Right <laughs> got in so much trouble one time. And I think none of my family members are other places. So I, I got in so much trouble one time at a ballet recital that went on and on and on and on. While the Rockets were playing that very famous come from behind by 30 points to Phoenix game. And uh, we, a bunch of us dads had it in our ears. <laughs> we, you know, we cheered at the wrong time. And the wives didn't like that. But anyway, I, I might say I hope so. And that might be more Elpis than the, the Texas thing, I hope. I mean, there's, there's great believers on on both teams, and, uh, and I don't think it's an accident that, that uh, some of them are being blessed in that way. But if we have hope, wouldn't that give you more endurance? You, you see the progression? First, first we have faith, and that faith then leads to hope, and that hope follows is, uh, leads to endurance or perhaps perseverance. If you don't know how it's going to turn out, it's wearisome. But as we said before, the Bible's not like a novel that'll be spoiled if you read ahead. You know, it's, 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 it's a source of great confidence and, and, and hence a confident expectation of the future knowing what's going to happen. Now, I don't know what's going to happen necessarily from here to the time that God decides to call me home. I, I don't know. I do know that he's up there directing the affairs of this life. Down, down to the most minute of details. And I know he loves me. And I know he cares deeply for me. And I know he knows all about my problems as we study Sunday night. And I know he's omnipotent and he's able to solve that problem. I know that. So in that sense, I can have a confident expectation that things are going to work out the way God wants them to work out, ultimately for my benefit. But there's even something better than that. I know when it's all said and done, when everything's finished, and we're all standing there together. We can kind of look at each other and wink and nod when it's all finished. After we've gone through the judgment seat of Christ, we've all received our resurrection bodies. We've all received whatever reward we're going to get. And we kind of stroll off getting ready to go ahead and be part of the second advent. You know, we ought to all just kind of wink and give each other the thumbs up. You know, it all worked out. It worked out exactly the way it was supposed to work out for His glory. Now, knowing that... Knowing that there will be a day, I can promise you, if, if you believe anything in the Word of God, if you believe, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, now shalt be saved. You, you authority believe that, right? If you've trusted Him to save your eternal soul, then I can also tell you on the authority of the same book, same author, by the way, the Holy Spirit, on the authority of the same book and the same author, it's going to all work out fine. We are all going to be there. Now, since, we, since we, can, we can know that with certainty. Now, I can't tell you the details and how it's going to work out along the way. But I can tell you with certainty where we're going to end up. And because, because of that certainty, I can persevere through the details between now and then. I don't see how people do it that don't have that certainty. It, it is way beyond me. I have, I have a real pity for them. I don't know if he's a believer or not, but one of the, the fellows from the Dallas Cowboys, not my favorite football player, is, is a bit arrogant as far as I'm concerned, but uh, early on today they thought maybe he tried to take his own life. And then he denied that, that it is. I don't know if he did or not. 
But I do know just watching his behavior, it looks very much like he was trying to fill up an empty hole in his soul with himself. He was trying to make himself his own integration point. At least that's the way it appears. At least that's the public appearance that he was trying to give. Well, you know what? None of us are big enough to be our own integration point. We can't do it. But there is an integration point that is big enough, and that's God. And knowing that one day, no matter what happens here, no matter, no matter how that cancer progresses, no matter what happens with those kids, you know, no matter what happens with the job, I, I can guarantee you that there is going to be a time in the future that we'll all be in glory, in a resurrection body. And the things of earth, as the old hymn said, will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Now, does that make sense? Now do you see why the progression? Now do you see the progression? First, we start with a pursuit of righteousness. A pursuit of righteousness then leads to a behavior that glorifies God. I didn't say it's going to be easy. In, in fact, Paul's going to call it a fight in a minute. He's going to make an analogy with a boxing match. It's not necessarily going to be easy, but this is what's expected of us. Pursue righteousness with the same intensity as we would hit the ground if that officer told us to get down. And then that's going to lead to a, to a, a trust and a moment-by-moment reliance upon God in faith, which, of course, will increase our love. And then we would exercise hope and perseverance. And finally godliness faith love and perseverance all go together when one has exercised faith love and perseverance and the perseverance as a result of the hope that we have when one has exercised that it will result in an attitude that's different than what you had going in i don't know about you i'll, I'll tell on myself there i am so embarrassed with myself, I don't. I don't. I'm not going to tell you what it's over, what things over. But but when I get so uptight about what, in the big scheme of things, are trivialities, that's one thing Cindy's real good at. You know, I, I come in, I, so it's no big deal. No big deal. You know. <laughs> but anyway, after a while, she, you know, she's she's good at that. So pray for her because <laughs> she takes the bullets that are usually due someone else sometimes. But but, but there is a, a difference in attitude. Once, once you realize that we've already got it won, there's a difference in attitude. There'll be a, a gentleness in your attitude, in your disposition, that wasn't there before. As a matter of fact, it, it hardly could be there before. For you see, if, if you don't know how it's going to work out, then you may get uptight. I remember Zig Ziglar. Remember him? He's the insurance guy, but he taught a Sunday school class, First Baptist Dallas, for years. Zig Ziglar is one of the best motivational speakers I've ever been in a room with. And Zig tells the time is when he was watching a football game, or wanted to watch a football game, the Super Bowl with a bunch of guys from his church up there. But it was one of the many times Dallas has been in the Super Bowl. And so they all decided that they would wait Tape the game. You've done this before, right? You, you tape the game, and they no, they weren't going to turn the radio on. They didn't want anybody to tell them what happened. And then they were going to watch the game from the beginning as if it was really happening. Well, on the way to the person's home that, that was hosting the game, somebody called Zig and told him, you know, what, what the outcome was. But he didn't tell anybody else. He sat there in the game, and as they watched the game unfold, he watched people just get so upset. That's a terrible call. Now, he already knew that the Cowboys had won. And he watched the game with a different perspective. You see that pass interference call that everybody gets so tight about? He knew 
Because he already knew how it turned out. It wasn't going to matter in the ultimate outcome of the game. You see? In the same way, we already know. Our, our attitude as we watch this unfold is going to be more relaxed. So the final, the final virtue that is a result of pursuing righteousness is gentleness. Because, see, you're not intimidated by the things that life throws at you, by the things that Satan and Satan's system throw at you. You wouldn't be intimidated by that if you know ultimately how it's going to work out. It'd be like, it'd be like if you were um, Joe Frazier. Remember Joe Frazier? Mike Tyson, if you would prefer, but I'd prefer Joe Frazier. Or Muhammad Ali, if you prefer him. But it would be like if you were Joe Frazier at your pri- in your prime, heavyweight boxing champion, and a six-year-old, a six-year-old comes up and says, hey, man, outside, you and me. Now, if you're Joe Frazier, are you going to get really uptight about that? No, because you've got the power to smash it. It's no, it's no threat to you. And if there's no threat to you, your behavior is going to be less aggressive. If we pursue righteousness, the ultimate end point is a gentleness in disposition because you're no longer intimidated. Now, if you're intimidated, then aggressiveness is the human response. If they come at me, I'm going to come back at them as hard as I can come back at them. If I'm intimidated by that. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that the Christian life is one of just simply passivity. In fact, Francis Schaeffer coined the term active passivity. There is a passive aspect to the Christian life, but remember there is an active pursuit of the righteousness. And that's what Paul wants us to do. And then when we get to verse 12, when comparing the life of the Christian to an athletic contest, he says, fight the good fight of faith. The sense is that Timothy must continue to fight this noble fight, just as he must continue to flee away from the vices of his opponent and pursue the opposite virtues. Now, in any kind of boxing match or, or a martial arts match, they've got these two-minute rounds, three-minute rounds. Some of these maniacs are going five-minute rounds. But, you know, there's, there's a three-minute round, then you've got a minute break. You know, then there's another three-minute round, you've got a minute break. And if it's a championship fight, it may go 15 rounds. But if you're a boxer, you know that there's a time when you know, the, the fight's over and you can go back to the locker room. Well, as a Christian, we don't know how many rounds we're going. Did you ever think about that? But we have to fight with the same intensity, regardless of how many rounds it is. And it is a fight. There are times when Paul equates the Christian life with a race. You know, he does that in Second Corinthians. But not here. Here he equates it with a different kind of athletic events, either a boxing match, perhaps, or a a wrestling match. These were events that were part of the ancient games of the time. You think that we put our athletes on a pedestal now? That's nothing new. If you go back in history, those who participated in these games, the the Corinthian games, the Pythian games, the the games at, at Olympus, the Olympic games, People who won those, people who participated in and won those were the biggest celebrities of their day. Do you know that? They, they would have a new, when, when they would come back, they would have a new gate put in the city wall just for them. Now, that's no small deal. Those city walls were pretty thick, and, and they would be exempt from income taxes. They, 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 was, they were incredibly um, uh, well-known and, and lifted up on a pedestal. Well, Paul uses this 
this athletic analogy. And two of the games that were played were wrestling and boxing. Boxing goes way back. It's it's a fairly brutal sport, I do admit, but it goes way way back. And and typically they they uh, spent a lot of time preparing for this. But it did take this. It, it, it is something that takes endurance. You had to, to build up to it. It takes endurance of a physical nature. But in the fight that we fight that is not with flesh and blood, but with spirit and principalities, it takes a different kind of endurance. It, it takes a different kind of wind. It, it, takes a, it takes an endurance that's been tested and tried by, by smaller challenges that have come up on you. Have you ever, have you ever looked back at the course of your life and, and seen the things that came early on? that you thought were so difficult, if you had to take care of that now, I said, boy, just bring that one to me. That'd be a piece of cake compared to this one I'm going through right now. Well, God's not going to let you be tested in any way that you don't have the spiritual resources to handle. Now, some of you might might say, well, Father, I, I, I didn't think I had... <laughs> I just didn't go back a grade. <laughs> Uh, I, don't, I don't particularly want this. Per, I, don't, I, don't, I can't handle this particular one. And, and oftentimes, frankly, it's, it's not. It's not yourself. Sometimes the biggest test are the tests that you go through with somebody else. You know, when you sit down with a doctor, and it's not you getting the report, but it's your husband or your wife that gets the report. Sometimes the person getting the report can handle it better than the than the person not. But but the the degree of our testing is going to increase as we fight the fight. The rounds get tougher. Round three is going to be tougher than round one was. And I know at least half of you have never, probably more, have never been in a, in a ring like that. But when you're getting pounded and you're getting tired, sometimes it's very difficult to even, even bring your arms up. And that's, what, that's why people in boxing matches either get knocked out right away when they're cold or they get knocked out toward the end of the fight because they become weary and they can't lift their arms up and defend themselves and you got to really train and train and train and you got to you got to trust God that he won't put you in the ring with someone that's going to annihilate you one time way back several years back I was uh, I, w- I was training real hard in, in some martial arts thing and so a friend of mine thought it'd be funny to set me up with the, the heavyweight kickboxing champions for Texas so I could be his sparring partner. And at the time, he was George Foreman's sparring partner. And so, uh, like a fool, I you know, he said, you want to do this? I said, sure. You know. So I ain't scared of nothing. You know. <laughs> Should have been real scared. Fortunately, um, fortunately God uh, allowed me to sprain my ankle playing a basketball game. I had to call up and say, hey, listen, can't, can't fight the guy. <laughs> Several years later, I ran into the guy that I was gonna—I was supposed to spar with, and it was, he was an animal. <laughs> I mean, I, I just looked at him, and I, I, when I walked in the room with him, and I saw him sitting there, uh, he knew who I was. I knew who he was at, at that point, and and uh, I won't say his name, but I said, "You're—I uh, understand you're," and he said, "Yeah, I understand you're Bruce Bumgarner." And I said, "You know, I said you might not remember this, but I was supposed to spar you about three or four years ago when you were training for the—you know—whatever." He said, yeah, I remember. And then he looked at me and said, you know what, I killed you. <laughs> and I said, yeah, I can see that. <laughs> well, God's not going to put you in the ring with somebody like that. Because that, that was way above my pay grade, you know. 
but it is a fight, and, and we can't we can't just laugh it off. It is serious, and it's a fight in the middle of the day. It's a fight at two o'clock in the morning too. You know, when everything's quiet, when, when all the the busyness of life has been set aside, it is a fight. And what Paul tells Timothy here: fight the good fight. Continue, by the way. He's already fighting it, but continue to fight the good fight of faith. And then he says something that's rather odd, I think. He says, take hold of the eternal life. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that, that you have to endure in order to receive the eternal life? No, that would be contrary to all other biblical teaching. You see, eternal life is a present possession for you if you have trusted Jesus Christ to forgive your sins and to grant you eternal life. You get it at the moment you exercise faith. The scriptures are clear about that. So what does Paul mean here? Take hold, seize, grasp the eternal life to which you were called and made, and sometimes it's translated, when you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. What does that mean? To grab hold of, to seize, to grasp as hard as you can the eternal life. The, um, the Romans had a Latin phrase, carpe diem, and it became popular about uh, about a dozen years or so ago in the movie uh, uh, Dead Poet Society, uh, Robin Williams, it was, it was a big part of that film. Seize the day. Well, what Paul says here, seize the eternal life. Well, I've already got it. What does he mean for me to seize it? He's went back to what he said a minute ago. You see, while eternal life is a present reality for you, you already have it. Have you ever stopped to think about it? Have you ever stopped to think that right now you have eternal life? And that is one of the most significant things that you can ponder. Because if you've got eternal life, and that eternal life is going to be spent in a place of no more sorrow, no more pain, no more tears, no more death, all the old things have passed away. And it is, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. If it's going to be spent in the presence of God in heaven, Jesus Christ in heaven, with, with all of the wonderful rewards that he, that he can possibly pour out upon us, more than you could ever ask or think. Do you ever think about that phrase, or do you just say it in your head? More than you could ever ask or think? I can ask for a lot. <laughs> I've I got a great imagination of what it might be like. And to, and to know the reality is it's way better than anything I could ever think. That's what Paul means when, when you grab hold of it, seize it, hold on to that reality that that's yours right now. And again, if you can grab onto that reality, if you've seized the eternal life, it is a present reality, but if you've, if you've experienced that, if it's right there in front of you on a day-to-day basis, it makes it easier for you to get to, from point A to point B at any given moment. Coming up a, a week, two weeks ago this coming Friday, uh, my son David didn't have a football game that day. And uh, so he decided he would go off with his friends. Normally, I'd pick him up from school. And this particular day, he said, Dad, don't pick me up from school. I'm going to ride home with one of my buddies. So uh, there was a missionary in town. Sydney and I had an appointment or an invitation, you know. So, so we went and took the, took the opportunity, since he didn't have a ball game that night, to go visit with a missionary. My phone rings about 30 minutes into the deal. Typically, I wouldn't answer it in something like that, but I, you know, I said, well, something, something's not right. David doesn't usually call at the, like, like that. So I picked up the phone. He did exactly what he should do. He said the first words out of his mouth were, Dad, I'm okay, but... And I can hear by the trembling that there was a big but that was coming after that, but we've had a terrible automobile accident. 
And he said to his friend, he said, my friend's okay, and the people in the other car are okay too, but he said that it was really bad. Well, you know how you kind of have those delayed reactions. Immediately the, the adrenaline surges. We couldn't get to him in time. The other parents had to go get to him. You know, anyway, we, we kind of met up. And, um, and the thing that kept going through my head was, I, I'm so grateful the Lord decided to spare him and leave him with me for a while. But had he chosen to take him home, I was going to see him again. Because he has eternal life. There's nothing that can be done to take that away. And if I didn't have that confidence, I'm guaranteeing you there's no way he's getting out of my sight ever again. You see what I mean? But, but you can't live that way. I know if something would have happened, I would see him again. And if I don't believe that, I should quit, go somewhere else, live in the mountains in a cabin for the rest of my life because I'd be the biggest hypocrite in the world. I believe that because the Word of God says it. Now, that's how we get from point A to point B. I have seized the eternal life. Not, not only mine, but the eternal life of those who I know possess it. And so that's why I know if something happens to one of you guys or girls, we're going to meet up again. You know, it's, it's not goodbye like it is for some other folks. I've said goodbye to, to, to more in this congregation than I'd like to say goodbye to. It's difficult to do that. But in almost every case, at least every case that I can think of, one of the last things that we said to each other was, you know what, we're going to get back together. I'll see you in heaven. There's going to be a time when we're going to rejoice. And you get up there and you have a good time. And I'll be down here preaching and we'll check you out real soon. You see, because that's, that's the present reality that we have. So that's why Paul says in verse 12, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life, seize it, the eternal life to which you were called, he's talking about his election there, but also which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, he's not saying the public proclamation is what got him that eternal life, but he's, he's, he's again, in, in that very subtle way that Paul does, he's demonstrating a balance between the sovereignty of God and the, the decision that man had to make in this verse. And then he says, I charge you. This, this verse just keeps getting more and more, or this passage, more and more intense as he goes along. Because this phrase, I charge you, is... Is not a, um, a light phrase at all. He charges us in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Paul says, I charge you, or perhaps I command you. That is, I, I pass along this authoritative message, and God's the one right here watching this. He's the one that told me to tell you. He presents two reasons why Timothy should do the things that he'd just been told to do. Why you should do them and why I should do them as well. First, he shouldn't fear for his life. For the one who's charging him to behave this way is the very one that gave him life in the first place. Ever thought about that? The very one that is telling us to behave this way is the one that gave him the life in the first place. God is the giver and he's the preserver of life. And also, let him remember what Jesus Christ did when he was testifying before an enemy of the truth, Pontius Pilate. Before Pilate, Christ stands firm. And he makes this incredible confession before him, proving himself to be a faithful witness. You remember the scene, don't you? Jesus has been ridiculed. He's been beaten. He has been falsely accused all night long in the Sanhedrin. 
it's hard to say how much violence took place there, but we know some did. You know, people would come up after after he had been accused, and they would they would smack him right in the face. You know, prophesy who that was that just hit you, Messiah. And he endured that whole thing and, and stood there, never sinning, because of you and because of me. And then about six o'clock in the morning, the Jews understood that what they had done all night was illegal. And so also because they couldn't crucify Jesus themselves, not under Roman law. And now they do it later on with Stephen. Have you ever thought about that? They, they do. That's a lynch mob mentality. They sent Paul out to do it apart from Roman law. But this, this one time they wanted to do it right, probably also because prophecy had said that he would be crucified. So then he's taken to Pontius Pilate about 6 o'clock in the morning, right about the time the sun comes up. Pontius Pilate's waiting for him. He goes out the first time and says, hey, listen, what do you do? And then, then, then the Jews said, well, if he didn't do something really bad, we wouldn't have brought him to you. He says, well, then take him and judge him by your own law then. If, if you're not going to get specific with the charge, you go take care of it. And then, then things go back and forth and back and forth, and, and Pilate ends up sending Jesus to, to Herod. That doesn't work out. He tries to get him off his hand anyway and get him off. Then he realizes that he's got an innocent man there. Jesus had made a good confession. There was absolutely nothing they could find in him that was guilty at all. Nothing. You know how many times Jesus was found guilty by Pontius Pilate in that whole three hours? Do you know how many times he was? Zero. He was never found guilty by Pilate, or Herod, for that matter. And he stood there and made a good confession before Pilate and before the world. In spite of the fact that just moments before that, Pilate, in order, I think in order to save his skin, frankly, if you look at the text very carefully, it looks like the reason Pilate had Jesus scourged was perhaps if I have him scourged, they won't, they won't insist that he be crucified. One of the, one of the um, most dramatic representations I've ever seen on film was in Mel Gibson's film, The Passion, where he had had Jesus portrayed Jesus as being brutal, brutalized by the Roman scourgers. And I know a lot of you, because you've talked to me about it, were, were very offended by that scene. You know what? It was every bit as brutal as that. In, in reality, it might have been more brutal than that. Don't run away from it. Realize what your Savior did for you. And that's, that's not where our salvation actually came from, but had he flinched there, we never would have had salvation. But one of the most incredible scenes is where, where he's beaten to a pulp. The skin is literally off his back and off the sides of his body. They put a crown of thorns on his head. They put a robe around him. And Pilate brings, out, brings Jesus out to the cross and says, Ece homo. And, and even in that film, you can see Jesus' knees are wobbling because he's as weak as he can be. But he stood firm. He didn't quit. And thank God that he didn't. You see, he was fighting the good fight. We are never asked to do, as a Christian, anything Jesus hadn't already done to a much greater degree. He has already stood firm. He has represented God well. He represented the Father well to mankind. Now it's our responsibility to represent him well to mankind. So that's what, that's what Paul means was, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life. If you're worried about losing your life, he's the one who gave it to you in the first place. And that's where you're going to go when this is all over. He gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's supposed to keep it, that is, he's supposed to stand over it, he's supposed to guard it, he's supposed to protect it, he's supposed to preserve it. He has been given a responsibility. Now, his responsibility was slightly different than yours and mine, because he had a little bit more responsibility 
placed on him as a representative of, his, of an apostle in addition to his ambassadorship, but all of us have this responsibility to stand firm and to represent Christ well. To keep the commandment, that's the, the commission that we've been given, if you prefer, the commission that we've been given without stain or reproach. That's a permanent order. It's never going to be withdrawn. Uh, that order is going to be in effect until either we die or until such time as the Lord Jesus Christ comes for his church. That's when the, that's when the responsibility ends. Everyone must keep his or her commission untainted and unsoiled until the very day of his death or until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which in context here, I believe, is the rapture of the church. Now, we share in the charge that was given to Timothy. We're not to engage in defeatist thinking when times get tough. On the contrary, we are to live life now with a sense of confidence, realizing that the eternal life we have been promised is a present reality. Just like our Lord stood firm before Pilate, so too we have the responsibility to stand firm before a world that desperately needs an infinite point of reference. Jesus Christ is that reference point, and you represent him. When people see you, do they see Jesus Christ? Our present battle is not one that's just going to have repercussions now. Many of the tasks that we take up in life will be either rewarded or, or there will be a lack of reward, a lack of blessing in the here and now. But this fight that Paul's talking about, standing firm, this ambassadorship, this representative we have for Jesus Christ, is not just for the now. This present battle will have vibrations that resonate for all eternity. This is serious stuff. Let him who has ears hear. Heavenly Father, we are humbled by this charge that you've given us as your representatives to endure, to fight the good fight, not to quit. And because of the hope that we have, because of the eternal life that we already enjoy, because, because we know how it all works out, to serve you well and to exercise gentleness toward those that we meet. Father, I thank you for the charge. I thank you for the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit that makes the fulfillment of that charge possible. And I thank you for the example of our Lord Jesus Christ who stood before Pilate and represented you well. And now, Father, may we stand before this lost and dying world and represent him well while we're here. We'll ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.